You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have everybody with us. This is the time of the year when you don't know what to wear. You get up in the morning and it's cold. You get where you're going and it's hot. And then you get in the car to leave and it's cold again. It's crazy. Especially going into a fast. This was a beginning of a 40-day fast on Sunday. And at the beginning of a fast, not too much changes. Towards the end of the fast, you're like, where's my sweater? I'm freezing. Anyway, Sunday we talked a little bit about why we're fasting, how we fast for specific things, and what we are going after as a church in this season. Hope you're joining us as you can along the way. And if you're in town here in Kansas City, we would love to see you on Sunday morning at 1030 at the Culture House. If you need directions or anything else, you can go to thebridgekc.church. All right, dive in. I'm going to go fairly fast and cover a lot of stuff this morning. I would tell you I'm sorry, but I'm not. And uh, it's just kind of the way it is. One of my kids came to me on, uh, I don't know, just this week, one of, my, one of my older twins and said, Dad, when you teach, it's like, when you preach, it's like you teach. When mom teaches, it's more like she prophesies. Pause. She goes, I kind of like the prophesying better. I'm like, okay, well... Bless you, child. Go to bed. No. Yeah, it's, I, I just, there's a lot I want to cover before we go into this fast, because what I'm asking you to do, some of you are going to get three, four, five, ten days into it and go, why are we doing this? Like, why, I'm going to be doing this. Why are we doing this? I'm hungry. I, there's things I, I want to eat that. Why are we? So there's a lot of reasons why we're doing this, and I want to lay those out to you. Write them on post-its, put them on your fridge, do whatever it helps you to do to stick with the fast, however you decide to say yes to it. Uh, real quick recap for those of you who weren't with us last week or even just need a reminded, I am feeling as if we are being plugged in to a 20-year-old prophetic word that Lou Engel gave or received from the Lord. And it's something that I've heard him talk about for years that I never saw myself in. And just in recent weeks and recent months, I realized this is in part for us. And the word was this that he got. What Charles Lindbergh did in the natural, speaking to Lou, you will do in the spiritual. You'll raise up an air force of long-distance fasting flyers who, like Daniel in fasting, will shift principalities and powers over whole nations, and those long-distance flyers will sweep the skies like no other generation, releasing a great harvest in history. I'm not saying that entire word was about us. I'm saying we can plug into that, and we can claim part of that for ourselves. Now, for some of you, the idea of seeing yourself in an old prophetic word is a little weird. Like, you just never thought, how does that work? Let me take just a couple of minutes and break down some understanding of the nature of the prophetic, particularly in a New Testament context. New Testament prophecy is distinct and largely different than Old Testament prophecy. And this is how it works. Whenever I hear people who are uncomfortable with a prophetic word or uncomfortable with uh, the idea of there being New Testament prophecy, they always bring out the passage from Deuteronomy. Well, if they're a false prophet, I guess we can kill them. Right? Because in the Old Testament, have you heard that people, well, it's a false prophet, we should kill him, okay? The people who pull that passage out quickly were probably looking for a way to kill the prophetic anyway. Like they were already not happy with the idea. But there's a difference. In the Old Testament, 
the Holy Spirit would rest on a man or a woman, an individual, and they would speak on behalf of the Lord. It was a thus saith the Lord moment. And then it either happened or it didn't happen, and the prophet would sweat bullets until it did. Because the rules were real. You did kill a false prophet. They operated in the office of a prophet, like Moses coming down from the mountain saying, God said. It was the Old Testament paradigm. The Holy Spirit came upon a person for specific times to share a specific word. In the New Testament, we use the word prophet and the idea of prophetic, but with a little bit of a different twist. Now, these ideas are not mine alone. Some of you are going, where did you get this? This is actually a widespread idea uh, written extensively about by a man named Wayne Grudem, holds a BA in economics from Harvard, an MDiv, and a Doctor of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary, went on to teach for 20 years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. These are not ideas that are, are unfounded, okay? But they're based in the idea of 1 Corinthians 14, 31, for all can prophesy, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. The New Testament model of prophecy is not that one person comes out of the woodwork and speaks for God. It's that a spirit of prophecy rests on the body of Christ and many can prophesy. It's not a lower bar, it's a different function. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not a thus saith the Lord, da, 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 da. It is a different function of encouragement. Now, people may use that language, but in the New Testament, it's a different function. Old Testament prophecy pointed to God, but largely revolved around the prophet. And the New Testament prophecy comes from the body of Christ in the form of people, in the words of encouragement, and it's more conversational, and frankly, it's just more open to interpretation. And we see that even in the New Testament, Acts 15. They're trying to discern how do they let the Gentiles interact with the Jewish Christians. They're trying to sort out what are the rules. Do we make them follow all the rules? Do we make them follow some of the rules? Do we write them a hall pass? What does this look like? And how they determined, how they landed that was they said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is what we sense the Lord is saying. The Lord was speaking to the whole of them. And through the book of Acts, we see a very different relationship with prophecy than we see in the Old Testament. It's not discounted. And the, Old, the New Testament tells us to wage war with the prophecies. Take the words that you received and hang on to them and fight for them. However, it's a little more like poetry than it is an editorial. There's, there's room to wrestle and to debate it. Acts 21, there's an example of this. Acts 21, 8 through 12. We enter the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Stop for a second. If you have a problem with uh, women in ministry, sorry, you missed the bus, okay? This guy's got all of his daughters prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Hit pause again. Agabus is a recognized prophetic voice, okay? Some chapters earlier, he prophesied a famine, nailed it. The church like went out and prepared for the famine and were able to help other churches uh, throughout that region because they heeded that prophetic word. So Abacus, known prophet, comes to the meeting and in coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound him, his own feet and hands, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged them not to go to Jerusalem. So here he is. He prophesies to him. He goes, I tell you what, you go down there, and the Jews are going to, they're going to tie you up with your belt, and they're going to, it's, it's bad. Or not the Jews. He said, um, what does he say? Yeah, the Jews. 
but it didn't happen that way. Like, it didn't actually work. In fact, that's pretty strong prophetic direction. You're going to be bound, don't go. Paul goes anyway. Were the prophets wrong? Was Paul foolish? How did the people respond? The next verse said, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. They're like, okay, we'll hold it kind of loosely, but be warned. New Testament prophecy is, it's just different than old. You have to give God room to breathe, okay? And to walk these things out. So when I look at this old prophetic word, I'm saying, Lord, could we be a part of this? There are two key points out of this that I think he is stirring in us. One is to shift principalities over whole nations. That's what we're talking about as we look at this book. Lord, how do we intercede in a way that affects things on a national and a global level? I believe that he has placed that yoke on us. Also to release a harvest of evangelism. So what Daniel was talking about. How, if I can go to Turkey and I can talk about Jesus, can I do that in Leewood? Can I share what God has done in us in a way that, that changes people's lives? Some of you are thinking, well, how much impact can we really have? And just a few of us. I think we can have more than we think if we invite God into the process. Generally, we overstate our natural influence and we underestimate our supernatural influence. We look at, we go, oh, I think I can do da 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 da. How many of you are list makers? Okay, you're a list maker. And others of you are non-list makers. Okay, let me tell you how the non-list makers look at you list makers. You are setting us up for disappointment. You're giving us 19 things and I know I can do 10, okay? But for the list makers, that, that makes more sense to you. But some of you overestimate what you can do in the natural and then you end up disappointed or tired, but we underestimate what we can do in the supernatural. And if we are going to make an impact, it's not going to be naturally. It's going to be supernaturally. I want to lean into that. We can't do it on our own, but we can do it empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, this morning I want to talk about specific fasting. We, we talked last week about fasting as a discipline. Just the regular, this is what we do. It's a part of our lives. This morning I want to talk about specific fasting and what it does in our hearts. Fasting. Why do we fast for specific reasons or situations? Because Jesus himself said that some things only happen when we fast. It's the only way it works. Story in Matthew 9, or I'm sorry, Mark 9, where the disciples are trying to cast a demon out of this, this child and they go to Jesus, they're like, mm, it's not working. Jesus casts the demon out of the child. Later they say, how, why do you, explain to this, how did you do that? He tells them, only comes out with prayer and fasting. That's the only way it works. Some modern translations have dropped that word fasting. You may be reading that and go, you don't see that in my Bible. The older translations have it. The thought is that the scribes either added it or subtracted it. It's hard for me to imagine a scribe adding. I can see them being in a hurry and deleting, but clearly the disciples had tried. They had done something. They'd prayed. He's like, yeah, you prayed. It takes prayer and fasting. There is something about this kind of conundrum that only can be addressed in prayer and fasting. Throughout life, you will come up against that kind of conundrum. There's something different about this boy. There's something different about your situation. And you will face the fact that, okay, you can pray about it all you want. You're going to break this thing off. It's going to take a fast. We fast at different times that are very specific. Looking at a couple of them in the Bible we fast in the face of a big opportunity. Most people think of fasting as a last resort. So when things go terrible, when nothing else works, we fast. Ezra looked at it a little bit differently. Ezra was a priest 
during the diaspora, the exile of the Jews, the elite and educated Jews to Babylon. And during that time, they were there for decades and decades, first as slaves, then just really as people who were oppressed. They weren't technically slaves, but they weren't free to go. And eventually they get what they want, which is a okay from the government to go back to Jerusalem. They had yearned for this opportunity for their entire lives. And now they get a yes. Some of you have yearned for an opportunity your entire life, and if it dropped in your lap, it would scare you. Like, oh, I wanted this to happen. Now it happened. Now what do I do? What's Ezra do? Ezra 8.21. Then I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God to seek him from a, for a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. What do you do when you suddenly get what you want? I feel like throwing a party. Don't you? It's like, finally... Everybody has come to their senses and given me what I wanted. This would have been easier if they'd have done it earlier. But they didn't. Ezra goes, no, when I got what I wanted, I saw the sobriety of the opportunity the Lord gave me. And I said, we need to fast. Because we could still jack this up. We got 600 miles to go. When you receive an opportunity, sometimes it's time to fast. Not all fasting, though, is celebratory fasting. Some of it comes from hard times. We fast when we process grief. Some of you are carrying a load of grief from genuine things that happened last week, last month, five years ago. And it is so a part of your life that it is hard to separate the grief from everything else. We had a friend when our older kids were little who would send birthday party invitations. And for some reason, I have never figured out, she would, in the card, she'd put glitter. Yeah, thank you. Some of you are like, eh. You, it's like, so the kids are all excited and you forget that the card is from Rachel and you open it and it's just, not this Rachel, another Rachel, poof, and glitter would go everywhere. And the kids are going, birthday party, and you're, Rachel. You know, it's like, why did you do this? I thought of her the other day when I heard a song by singer-songwriter Patrick Droney. And he wrote this. See, grief, it's just like glitter. It's hard to brush away. Bright light, and it still shimmers like it was yesterday. And it falls like confetti. All of the memories explode like a hand grenade. And it's sweet, and it's bitter. Grief is like glitter. Oh, what a mess it makes. Some of you have encountered grief, and you're like, I got it. I dealt with it. It's behind me. Dang it, there it is. The light hits it from another way, and you suddenly, you're just struck with that wave of grief from something that you thought you had dealt with. But it's like glitter, it gets on everything. Fasting in times of processing difficult things or grief can focus your heart on what God is doing and not all the glitter that's lying around you. King David had a child by another man's wife, had the man killed, and then the child is born, and then the baby gets sick. And King David fasted purposely to prepare himself for whatever happened. He was believing for healing, but he fasted for whatever might happen. 2 Samuel 12, 15 to 16, the Lord afflicted that child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Therefore, David sought God on behalf of the child, and he fasted, and he went in, and he lay all night on the ground. Now he's fasting in hope, but he's also fasting in preparation. And you know he's fasting in preparation because when the child dies, his advisors are like, you tell him. 
No, I'm not going to. I don't want. No, I, he, he's distraught. The worst thing in the world that could happen has already happened. I'm not going to tell him. He might do himself some harm. David's reaction, though, was quite different. David's reaction in uh, verses 22 and 23. He said, while the child was alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who knows whether God may be gracious to me and the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. In his fasting, in his grief, the Lord prepared his heart for whatever might happen. Is that cold-hearted? No, it is the words of a man who has fasted and prayed and walked as far as he could with his son. Fasting in hard times actually helps you prepare your heart for the glitter that explodes or the glitter that has exploded in your life and you can't get past. We fast in times of opportunity. We fast in times of grief. We fast in reaction or in times of corporate sin. You say, what is corporate sin? Is that sin done by a corporation? Well, it could be. No, no, no. That's not what it is. It is sin done by many to others. I mean the sin of the culture, the sin of the whole, done by a larger group of people. You don't need to look far in our nation to see corporate sin. And you may not be involved in it, but you have the authority to fast over it. Some of you are thinking, I don't know if I like this idea. There are all kinds of things that have happened in our nation that are sin that I am not held accountable for, and I don't know if I want to fast or repent for that. What if I'm not involved? Because when we look for a call to fast for corporate sin, most of us, our initial reaction is, am I on the hook for this? Did I do that? Am I guilty? We think of corporate sin in our nation, things like abortion. Some of you are going, I wasn't involved. But can you repent of it? Things like Native American issues in our history, things that happened 100 years before you were born. I wasn't involved in that, but can you repent of it? Things like racism. Just pull the pin on the hand grenade, walk away. You know, I mean, it's so volatile. Can't even talk about it. Because when you talk about it, somebody goes, who are you to talk about it? I thought you wanted to talk about it. I did, but not by you. You know, it's, it's so volatile. And many of us go, I, I don't want to repent. I'm not, I'm not a racist in my heart. But can you repent of it? Well, I didn't do those things. I'm not asking you if you did those things. I'm asking you is from where we stand on the timeline of history, can we approach these issues with humble hearts and express sorrow? Here's where we get in trouble. We're afraid of opening the door of repenting for these issues because we don't want to admit culpability or guilt. We live in a litigious society, don't we? Like it's... Like anybody can sue anybody for anything. And so as a result, we're very conscious of are we guilty or are we not guilty? The kingdom of God is not litigious, it is gracious. And in a gracious society, the question is not are we guilty, the question is are we sorry? Are we sorry that that happened to someone? Was I responsible for 400 years of slavery? I'm not even 100 years old. No. Am I sorry for it? Yes. Can I express sorrow and repentance on behalf of a nation for that? Yes. Can we press past the fear of getting blamed for something 
so that we can actually express our sorrow to people who've been hurt. People throughout the Bible confessed and repented of things they did not even do, and God welcomed it. There's this passage in Leviticus 26.40. They confessed their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in the treachery they committed against me and in walking contrary to me. This, this generation of people confessed what they did and they repented for the things their father did. And God said, I will remember my covenant with Jacob in regards to them. I will honor them for repenting of the things that their nation did. Now, just in the natural, where we are headed as a nation, what if, what if that could be turned by believers who expressed sorrow and repentance, who were not so overwhelmed with the thought of, what if somebody thinks I'm guilty? You're guilty of something, okay? Maybe not that, but you're guilty of something else. It's not like you're perfectly pure. You're so nervous about being pegged with those things. Can we express sorrow? Or are we too afraid of owning something? Don't be so consumed with if you personally committed the offense, but rather if the offense was committed against God. We can pray and fast and move God's heart toward the people that we live among. The kingdom is a gracious kingdom. If we're going to expand the kingdom, we've got to expand it with graciousness towards our culture. We can fast in times of opportunity. We can fast in times of loss. We can fast in times of repentance. We can fast in times of crisis. You know, a good way to think about the Old Testament books is if you were rewriting them, what would you title them? Like, what would you, what would you call some of these books? Book of Joel? I think I would call The Unthinkable. Because The Unthinkable happens in the book of Joel really early. The book of Joel records devastation of what would be the closest thing in that world to a superpower. And they couldn't have imagined it. They couldn't have imagined never being in power. Now, most of us really don't understand geopolitics very well, maybe back more than one or two generations, right? Like, we kind of know how we live. We got an idea how our parents lived, maybe a shadow of how our grandparents lived. But beyond that, oh, you might know names and a few things, but you, don't, you know, we got, we, we got in uh, the car on the way home from church last week after having the Ukrainians here, and my, grandmother, or my, my mom looked at me and said, you know, your grandfather was born in Kiev. No, I, like I never read it. We're just like, oh, that changes everything. Well, it doesn't change anything, but it makes me think about things differently. We don't think much beyond, right, two generations. Like, what was it like? I don't know. So what we think of as normal, just a couple generations. There's a lot of things that have happened that we would have called abnormal. And the book of, of Joel here, they, they, they couldn't fathom that they wouldn't be in power one day. But yet there's a natural disaster. Then there's an economic disaster that comes from the natural disaster. And now that they're weak with economic and natural disaster, they're invaded. It was unthinkable. And in this time of crisis, how do they deal with it? Sign a petition? Maybe boycott something? No, no, they deal with this seriously. Joel 1.14, consecrate a fast call a solemn assembly, gather together the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. I am more convinced than I've ever been in my adult life that we are at a Joel 2 moment, even in our own nation. We see crisis at every hand. Our cities are falling apart. Have you all been tracking San Francisco? 
You could build a fence around San Francisco right now and only disappoint a couple hundred people. I mean, it's, it's in bad shape. Recently in San Francisco, they've issued a 24-7 crisis response team that will respond to what they're calling a crisis in a public situation, which in almost every case is a public overdose. You know how many calls they got in January? 7,000. San Francisco is only seven by seven miles. It's not that big. It's 49 square miles. You spread those 7,000 public overdoses where somebody had to show up and issue Narcan over the city of San Francisco, it's like 120 every square mile in a month. And then the whole thing starts all over again. It would be, if it's spread equally, it's not, but if it were spread equally, it would be hard to go stand in San Francisco in a place that someone had not overdosed in the previous month. Our cities are in crisis. Our economy is in crisis. Best, based on debt alone, national debt in 2019 was $70,000 per person. Within a year, it was $84,000 per person. Next time somebody says, I'm willing to pay my fair share, go, do you know what your fair share is? The truth is in crisis. When people can stand up and look right into a camera and say, I believe this, and you remember that a year ago they said they believed something very different. And nobody calls them on it. We are in a crisis as a nation. And I'm not saying that Joel 2 was written specifically for us, but I'm saying that we can trust the principles of Joel 2 and we can operate in those. Joel 2, 13 and 14 gives the direction, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether or not he will return and relent and leave a blessing, a grain offering and a drink offering for you. That who knows is what we are banking on. Some verses say perhaps God. It's like, okay, we, the nation we have, but perhaps God if we fast and pray. So, just different ways to specifically fast. Opportunity, grief, repentance, and crisis. The overflow of fasting is often much more dramatic than any of the reasons that we actually fast. God does something within us when we fast, and we come out of it, we see circumstances changed, we also realize that we are changed. Let me give you three quick, I'm going to call these nearly immediate benefits of fasting. Because if I call them immediate benefits, some of you are going to call me on Tuesday. It's not working! Give it a little time. Three nearly immediate benefits of fasting. One, our heart is set before the Lord. You and I have heart trouble. I have the same problem that you do. A lot of people say, oh, you should follow your heart. That is often terrible advice. You do dumb things following your heart. Our natural heart is not a good roadmap for life. People have train wrecked their lives following their heart because Jeremiah was not playing in Jeremiah 17, 9, when he tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? He's like, no, don't do that. Don't follow your heart. Fasting is a way of quieting our unreliable, fickle, distracted heart for a season so the Lord can move on. And we can see Jesus in a focused way. Fasting settles the traffic in our heart so that we can hear him. Daniel is one of my fasting heroes. All the way through the book of Daniel, he's always fasting. Starts out as a young man. And by Daniel 9, he's old. I know you don't think of Daniel as old in the book of Daniel, 
but that is blamed largely because of the flannel graph they had when you were a child. Those of you who are not church, let me let you in. Before there was PowerPoint, there was a flannel graph. It was a piece of paper, and it stuck on a board. And if you went to a really small church, they only had a couple of, like, different pieces. And Daniel looks suspiciously like Peter. You know, it's like, why is that the same guy? And he's the same age in every story. It's not true. Daniel, by Daniel 9, he's like in his 80s. And he starts out as a young man with a serious prayer habit. Daniel 6 talks to him about praying on his knees three times a day. It's admirable for somebody in their, uh, in their teens. But you know, get your 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s, your knees don't work the same way anymore. But Daniel stuck with it. And into Daniel 9, he's, in his, he's probably 80 by now. And there's a confidence that comes at 80 you didn't have at 20. You know, it really is. I'm 54. I'm way sure of things that I was not sure of at 24. And Daniel, in Daniel 9.3, again, he says, I set my face before the Lord God to make my request by prayer. He's like, I put myself before the Lord and I ask. Two chapters later, or two years later, he's 84. And he's fasting. And he has been about as successful as you can be in a foreign country. But he understands that anything that has worked for his good has come through this life of prayer and fasting. And in Daniel 10, an angel comes to him and says, you have set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God. What could become more encouraging than an angel appearing to you and says, we notice that your heart has been set before the Lord in fasting. We recognize this. There are a million things competing for your heart every day. News, entertainment, genuine, real cares of the world. If we do not intentionally set our heart before the Lord and turn all of those volumes off, we never get recognized by that angel that says, we see that you've, been, you've set your heart like this. We see that you have dialed in to what the Lord is saying. What does that look like practically at the start of the fast? For some of you, Setting your heart before the Lord is going to mean you're going to have to ask your spouse to change the password to that streaming app. Change the password, don't tell me. I'll see you in 40 days. Because it's distracting. And you're only nine shows behind to that one you're binging. He's like, no, no, no. Don't set your face before that. Set your face before me. For others, it's going to mean setting the alarm clock 20 minutes earlier so that you get time before the house explodes and you're responsible for all that stuff. And setting your heart before him. And it is regularly putting your cold block of a heart before the flame of the Lord and believing it's ice right now, but if I leave it before this flame, it will grow tender. Might not happen today, but it will happen over time. Now, let me also just say this. While we are fasting, take time in prayer. Fasting without praying is dieting. That's all it is. When you're doing the hard work of tenderizing your heart by fasting, don't allow it to go to waste. I heard one guy suggest, this is actually a great prayer. When you are at your hungriest on this fast, make a list of everything you're hungry for. Sounds counterproductive, doesn't it? Make a list of everything you're hungry for. Go get more paper if you need it. And then when you are done with that list, pray that list. Lord, I'm hungry for chips. Hungry for yogurt. Hungry for bananas. 
I'm hungry for lentils. I don't even like lentils, but I'm hungry. I'm hungry for all of these things. And then you end it with, but I am hungrier for you right now. Like, I want all these things. I'm not going to pretend I don't. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not, you know, have visitation rights to the fridge. I go and I just look. But I shut it and I'm hungrier for you. And it will tenderize your heart and hard telling what he can do with a tender heart that he could not do with a hard heart. You fast and it's setting your heart before him. The second thing that happens is we are reminded of our sin when we fast. Stuff you haven't thought of in years. Stuff that you made peace with. Daniel 9. He says, I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin. Remember, he's in his 80s. I'm like, Daniel, what are you doing? Like, what? Are you like stealing sugar packets at the coffee bar and bingo night? Like, what are you doing at 80 years old that you're struggling with sin? He's like, oh, you don't know what it's like to be 80. It's a lot like it is to be 20 in your head. Your mind still goes there. And, he's, and Daniel, in his fasting time, confesses his sin. Pay attention what surfaces in your heart while you are fasting. Pay attention to what comes up. You're like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I should, yeah, I'm sorry, Lord. And you start to confess those things. Every farm kid in the Midwest understands the joy of picking rocks, okay? Especially the upper Midwest, rocks come to the surface because it thaws and it freezes and it thaws. And these rocks come up. We, on our farm, we raised wheat, sunflowers, cattle, and rocks. And you had to go pick the rocks and pile them. It was just grunt work. It was terrible. But you had to do it because if you didn't do it, all the rocks would end up on the surface and then you could not raise a crop and you broke all your, all your uh, equipment. Fasting has this way of thawing and moving our heart and things come to the surface. And when it comes to the surface, there it is and you got to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, you're going to break things and you will not see a harvest in your own life. Matthew 13, 8, 9, he says, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. I want to live a life free of the rocks so that the soil of my heart can produce a hundredfold return. So that when I am obedient and the seed and the word gets in me, that the, my own rocks and junk don't choke it out. And here's the crazy thing about picking rocks. About the time you think you got them all, it freezes, it thaws, huh, more rocks. They're in you. We hit one one time with a cultivator and, and straightened a shank on the cultivator that was cold steel, curved. When we hit it, it just straightened it out. So we went out. Dad said, it's a little bit big. We start digging around it and around it and around it. And pretty soon the trench around the rock was up to here. The rock was the size of a Volkswagen. We had farmed that ground for 40 years. We never hit that rock. As you fast, things are going to come up. Don't farm around them. You've got to remove them. You've got to confess your sin. And I ask if the worship team would come back up. One last thing that happens when we fast, that happens in a way that doesn't happen when we don't fast, is we encounter God's love. Fasting is a way of saying, I'm going to refuse settling for the lesser pleasures in order to experience the full pleasure of what it is to know God. Why fasting? Because most of the time we're satisfying ourselves with junk. You know, we call the crazy hours at our house like from four to six. All the kids come home from school. They're starving. You're trying to, you know, keep them from the fridge so you can feed them the good stuff about 530. 
They overwhelm you. They run, do an end run around. And they, they eat whatever they can. And then it's dinner time. And they're like, I'm good. You ate nine Pop-Tarts. Yeah, but I'm good. In regular seasons of fasting, in depriving ourselves from the Pop-Tarts of life, we develop an appetite for the love of the Lord. And he sees that and he reveals himself to us in a way that he did not while we were eating Pop-Tarts, while we were binging on Netflix, while we were mostly concerned with our comfort. In regular seasons of fasting, Daniel encountered the love of God in a heightened way. Daniel 9, 23, angel tells him, I've come to you because you are greatly beloved. Daniel 10, 11, the angel said to him, Oh, Daniel, great man beloved, understand the words that I'm speaking to you. Daniel 10, 18, he says, Oh, great man beloved. Over and over, the angel speaks to him, calls him beloved of God. Fasting unlocks our longing for God and in return, God's affection for us. Now, real quickly, what are we specifically fasting for in these next 40 days? This is what I'm asking you to do. To participate in the way that you have grace to do. Some of you, maybe just vegetables. Some of you, Daniel fast, no meats, no sweets. Some of you may fast on water. Some of you go, I'm gonna just skip a meal a day. However, you've got a grace to say yes, say yes. I wanna pray and ask for authority to shift principalities and powers over nations. I wanna lean into this idea of governing from our knees and asking the Lord to shift things over nations. I want to pray for a heart for a great harvest for evangelism. Not just overseas, but in our own community. I want to pray for a greater move of the Holy Spirit in our own body. I want to see all the gifts of the Spirit manifest in our body. The Bible says they are all ours to ask for. I want to pray for reconciliation with people who we have struggled with over the years. We're going to be taking communion each Sunday through this fast. I want to encourage you to take communion in your homes every day of this fast and ask God to help you reconcile with those you need reconciled with. And finally, I want to pray for space for our church to grow. We need to find a place we can call our own. We can pray during the week and meet. We've, we got this venue during a 21-day fast fell in our laps. We're so grateful for it. But we're fasting again and we need something else. I want to ask you to stand. And as we worship, I just want to say yes to this fast in however he asks you to do it. Father, we come and we want a greater revelation of you. We want to dig up the rocks of our own heart that you're going to reveal to us over the next 40 days. And as we worship and, and we say yes to this fast in the measure that we have grace for, we ask that you would say yes to us. In Jesus' name.
kind of prayer to you. Every part of my Father, we just give you everything over these next 40 days. Take away distractions. We set aside our normal life. Give us strength to say no to things. We can say yes to you for these next 40 days. Father, we ask that in this season, you would reveal our own issues. We'd begin to pull those out and be rid of them so we could encounter you in a deeper way. We ask that you would reveal your love to us in a unique way, God. And that in fasting, God, you would give us equity in prayer over nations. Father, we pray that you would help us to shift things on a global scale. Right now, we ask for peace over.